As one of America's largest financial services companies, Nationwide makes simplicity a priority so financial professionals can help their clients achieve their retirement goals. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It offers flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business. You can also earn up to $395 in annual statement credits on eligible purchases at select business merchants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Davos, Switzerland, our David Weston with James Gorman. David? Thank you so much, Tom. Well, I'm here with your co-anchor, Lisa Abramowitz, and we do indeed have James Gorman, the chair and CEO of Morgan Stanley. So, James, thanks so much for joining us here in Davos. Uh, Your earnings came out. Everybody pay attention to them. And I heard a story, you can tell it's true or not, that once some time ago, you were recruiting a senior executive who said, you know, wealth management may not be as exciting, but over time you do better, more steady. Is that what we saw? I noticed your stock went up 6% when when Goldman's went down 6% on the same day. Well, firstly, thanks for having us. Um, You know, it it was a good day because I I told our board a couple of years ago what I'd really like to see, selfishly, is a very difficult environment. I don't want to see it for the country. I mean, it's not fair, but but for Morgan Stanley, because I wanted to prove the business model uh, would do fine when things are really difficult. And in fact, we had uh, our second best year ever in revenues and net income um, third best in EPS in our history. So, you know, what, what it proved was the volatility of the markets business, everybody understands. The volatility of underwriting, IPOs are not happening when things are very uncertain, uh, trading and the like. But what we proved is by having, you know, between five and six trillion dollars of people's money under management, that is stable. And that's, that was the design 12 years ago, and we've got there. One thing that you said was you are planning to expand some of the wealth management aspect, even as you cut back other parts of the business. You acquired E-Trade, Eaton Vance. Is there another acquisition that you're trying to target, or is it going to be just sort of organic growth? No, I think it's a mix of both. I mean, we started off with Smith Barney uh, 14 years ago. Then we acquired um, a wonderful little uh, company in Calgary, Canada called Solium, which did all the sort of uh, workplace stock plan businesses uh, for a lot of the S&P companies. Then we bought E-Trade, then we bought Eaton Vance, and we bought Mesa West, which is another company. So we've, we've, been, we've been building them, and as opportunities come up, we keep, we keep acquiring those spaces. Is there room for another large acquisition? There's always room. Um, <laughs> but we, we like things that aren't balance sheet intensive. Uh, we like things that help grow scale in spaces that we understand. And, um, you know, we like things when we know what the capital picture looks like. So, we, you know, at the moment, we've been quite aggressive with our buyback. We doubled our dividend two years ago. We increased 11% last year. Um, but we're also dealing with changing regulatory environment. 
So you're managing between what are the capital demands regulators require, how do you distribute it through dividends and through buybacks, and then what do you need to do to invest in the business, and part of that investment, of course, is acquisition. So it's a multi sort of chess game that we're playing. Uh, James, you just said it was, uh, some, there were some difficulties and you were happy that you could manage through those difficulties and show that your model works. Some of the difficulties were some highly leveraged loans for some acquisitions and things like that. Yeah. Uh, is that crimping your ability going forward to make some of those highly leveraged loans? Are you changing the risk calculus? No, we, we've been, I would say, um, erd conservative over the last two years. In fact, it was September, I think September a year, year and a half ago, that I met with the management committee and said, let's, let's all just pull it in five, 10%, right? Um, and our RWAs, our risk-weighted assets, actually declined uh, at the end of the year. So we, we did that. And so within the leveraged loan space, again, erred a little conservative, but we have a large portfolio. Obviously, you're going to take some losses in these markets within that. They're absorbed in our numbers, but you're also generating a lot of interest income, a lot of fees on it. So in balance, David, I think we're reasonably well positioned, but we're, we're definitely not trying to be aggressive in this environment. There is one high profile loan that might rhyme with Twitter uh, that we're going to have to talk about. The Twitter loan uh, that sure. I know Morgan Stanley led on could Morgan Stanley end up owning Twitter? Could Morgan? That, I've never been asked that question. Uh, no, we could not end up owning Twitter. Do you plan on offloading uh, those loans or do you just plan to hold them? Firstly, Twitter's a great company. And, and, and let's be fair, Elon Musk is, is one of the greatest entrepreneurs and business people you know, in the last century. And that's not, that's not an exaggeration. Look what he did. Just take the boring company alone, let alone SpaceX, let alone Tesla. I mean, this, this person has extraordinary capabilities. Uh, Twitter is a great company. Obviously, it's gone through restructuring. Um, uh, you know, it's, it's part of our, I'm not gonna talk about the specific loan position we have, uh, but um, we're very comfortable with that position. So uh, there are a lot of things we don't know about the economy going forward. One thing that people seem to be reasonably confident of, the rates are going to be higher. Interest rates are going to be higher than they have been in the past. How does that basic fact change your business? How do you manage your business differently when you've got rates at 4 5 6% instead of 0 to 1.5%? Well, we had, we had an artificial environment. You know, I, I remember when I came to the United States, I mean, obviously, as, a, as an unsecured student, I wasn't a great credit, <laughs> and the bank loan reflected it. I paid 24%. My first mortgage was 14 and a half percent. So we've lived in a sort of, we've lived in a surreal world for a decade, which is the legacy of the financial crisis. To get the economy back to where it was, central governments around the world kept rates near zero. Then along came COVID, which delayed what would have been a natural rise in rates globally. Then along came the Russian invasion of Ukraine, which further delayed it. Finally, you turn the corner in 2022, mid-22, when the Federal Reserve and other central banks around the world um, not by coordination, just by need, had to normalize rates back to neutral. They've gone higher than that. They had to go higher in order to take some of the fluff out of the economy. So I see it as sort of a natural consequence. I don't think of it's particularly alarming. A, a natural consequence, but which parts of Morgan Stanley's business are hurt by higher rates and which are helped by higher rates? Well, we, we, we benefit net interest income in, in the wealth business. We, you know, we manage over $300 billion of deposits. Um, and you know, rate, rate volatility obviously helps your macro trading businesses in foreign exchange and rates. It hurts uh, companies trying to, wanting to do deals because the cost of financing is higher. It hurts your margin loan business. People bring down their margin loans because it's more expensive. So there, there are a, 
uh, a gives and gets, if you will. But what I loved about the performance of the business last year, which again wasn't a record, uh, but was a great year, was that with those gives and gets, we came out in a position of 15% ROTCE and attracted over 300 billion of new money from clients. Here at Davos, there seems to be an incredible amount of optimism. And people have noted the shift in tone and that suddenly uh, things seem to be moving around the corner. And I had asked you, you know, do you think it's overplayed? You said you're the most optimistic person you know. So why are you so optimistic? What does optimistic look like here? Well, I've, you know, I've seen, I've seen a lot of cycles in my career and um, I've seen some really, really dark periods. You know, the financial crisis after September 11, um, even though, you know, the early recessions in the U.S. in 93, 94, the, the market bust in 87, you know, I go back, I'm a lot older than you, I go back a long way. And, um, you know, I think what we've been through, if you stack up the negative stuff that happened, um, first land war in Europe in 40 years, first global pandemic in a century, um, first land war in Europe in 70 years, first global pandemic in a century, and high, uh, highest rate increase because of inflation in 40 years, that's a lot to throw at people. And where are we now? It's not bad, the debate is, will it be a recession? Will it be short and shallow? Nobody's saying we go into depression, right? Everybody's saying we can kind of deal with this. And two things I think have changed in the last month, which has caused this echo chamber we live in here in Davos, where everybody's basically repeating back to each other what they've heard from the last person, <laughs> let's be honest. I'm not, hopefully, but uh, most people are. Um, is uh, two things have changed. Number one, the inflation numbers are definitely, there's clear evidence inflation has in fact peaked and is coming down, right? How quickly, whether the Fed will get us to 2% and when remains the debate. But is clearly the, the slope of the line is positive, is um, to everybody's favor. And the second is not just the opening up of China, but China has embraced the rest of the world more aggressively in the last few weeks, witnessed by the Vice Premier meeting with Treasury Secretary Yellen this morning, I think it was this morning, um, in a way that we haven't seen for some time. So the big question coming out of the party Congress and President Xi um, uh, you know, being re-elected re, uh, re by the Congress was where does China go from here? Does common prosperity mean effectively dividing the pie up so everybody gets a piece of it or by growing the pie? And what we're seeing is the tilt is now from divide the pie to grow the pie. Does that mean that you've got more confidence to expand in China? Uh, we've, we've, got a, we've got a very good business in greater China. Obviously, we have a huge business in Hong Kong. Um, and we, you know, we continue to have, I think on the mainland, up to 1,000 people in various, various functions. But no, I think we need to see a little more clarity of Chinese policy, uh, a little more you know, sober discussion around global trade relations. Um, and uh, you know, right now, I think we're, we're certainly in, in a watch, uh, but tilting more positive than we would have been three, six months ago. We've come all the way over to Switzerland. I'm struck, at least, by the fact that there's a lot of talk about Washington, particularly the debt ceiling. A lot of concern. And I hear two things. One is it's ridiculous. And two is it would be catastrophic. Uh, what is your reaction to that debt ceiling? How do you take into account the possibility of a U.S. default? Well, um, was it Churchill who said the Americans eventually get it right after, you know, and, and I can't remember Trying the exact Trying to alternative. <laughs> yeah, so, um, I, you know, I, I'm confident that, um, uh, I'm confident that uh, politics will finally get to the right place on this. I'm, I'm confident about that. Because the, the, the other option is just not an option. 
One thing at Davos that people have also been talking about is the new normal for work from home. We heard a bit of a retracement from Citigroup in, in an interview uh, that uh, David did here with Jane Fraser. What's the new normal? Is it coming into the office four days a week? Is it flexible? Is it work from home more freely? I think it's very, very specific to what you do. Um, you know, if you're a tax attorney um, who doesn't work with other teams, then obviously you can spend a lot more time by yourself. Doesn't matter if you're in an office or not. I mean, there are different kinds of jobs is where I'd start with. The, the main point is, post-COVID, we learned you can function. I ran Morgan Stanley for three months from my home office. Right, with 73,000 people. So that's, it's pretty remarkable. We proved you actually can do it by not going into the office. But should you do it by not going into the office? Now that clearly, to me, the big answer, the big uh, answer to that is no. Um, we won't put the genie back in the bottle. Five days in the office for everybody is not gonna happen again. For some people, of course. And at Morgan Stanley, we're kind of business unit by business unit. It's three or four days in the office. My, my rule has always been on this. If you're not spending a majority of your working time in the company of your colleagues, you are missing out on mentorship, on development, on EQ, on just reading the signals of being in a meeting and watch how people you know, handle the stresses that go on and the, un, you know, the unspoken uh, body language and so on. So it's three or four days a week. I don't think that changes in a hurry. Some people in some businesses, our trading floors are cheek to jowl. You go in there, they're five days a week. So it's very business specific, but my, my golden rule is don't put the genie back in the bottle, you can't. Uh, on the other hand, it's not a complete, this is not an employee choice. They don't get to choose their compensation. They don't get to choose their promotion. They don't get to choose stay home five days a week. I want them with other employees at least three or four days. Uh, so James, you've talked about some of the responsibilities of the CEO, which are formidable, you know, allocating capital, making sure you're right there. People sitting around corners. One of the jobs is succession for every good CEO. And we've seen it done well, we've seen it done not so well. A couple of years ago, you said maybe three more years. How do you approach the question of succession? How do you set it up for the good of the institution of Morgan Stanley? Very intentionally. Uh, firstly, you should always have a sort of an envelope for, uh, God forbid, um, something horrible happens. We're, we've done that from a very first board meeting in January of 2010. Um, but more realistically, you plan a generation of people who can take over. We at Morgan Stanley have now three executives who can replace me. Uh, they're all very, very talented executives and we're trying to fill out their skill base and ultimately the board will decide who is the best qualified to run our particular company at this point in time. I'm extremely intentional about it. Um, I would definitely step down. I'm not, I'm not gonna stay in this job for life. I have no interest in that. And it's unhealthy for our organ the way we're constructed, right? We've, we've got to focus on what's right for Morgan Stanley and it's to grow the next generation. I work on a 10 year and 20 year plan in talent planning. Mm. And that's how far out I'm thinking about it. And, you know, I've been in this job, uh, well, this is my 14th year, so I've had plenty of opportunity to develop <laughs> folks. And the great news is, David, we've got some unbelievable talent. James Gorman, thank you so much for being with us, the, uh, the head of Morgan Stanley. Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs, to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. 
Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. You can earn four times points on your top two eligible spending categories every month, like transit, U.S. restaurants, and gas stations. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Four times points on up to $150,000 in purchases per year. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. We're going to get some good news later this summer. The debt ceiling standoff looms in Washington. Bloomberg Opinion's Bill Dudley wrote the following. The debt limit doesn't contribute meaningfully to fiscal discipline. It encourages political grandstanding. It risks the default of the world's wealthiest and most powerful nation. Tom, it should be abolished. The words of Bill Dudley on Bloomberg Opinion. Strong, strong language. William Dudley is an important economist. Yes, the former president of the New York Fed, but someone more than any at the Fed steeled in the grind of market economics and actually working day to day through policy realities. Bill Dudley joins us this morning, writing for Bloomberg Opinion, a huge contributor. Bill, I was talking with our Michael McKee, and this goes back to McKelvey and you on the fiscal state of the nation at Goldman Sachs. In 2011, and even more recently in 2015, the Fed was proactive in modeling out debt ceiling outcomes. Do you just presume they will do that this time? And how will Jerome Powell and company assist Congress in measuring those tail risks? Well, there'll definitely be contingency planning. What do you do if there was a default on the debt? What do you do if there's uh, not a default, but prior to payments? The way it works is if you actually run out of money, uh, the Treasury will decide what payments to present to the Fed. Presumably, the Treasury will decide to prioritize uh, debt re- repayment and interest payments so there isn't a technical default. And then the Fed will basically honor the payments that the, that the Treasury presents. But what the Fed can do also is actually shore up market functioning in the Treasury market. Uh, what we saw in 2011 is the Treasury market got un- unsell- very unsettled as we got close to the deadline. People don't want to buy treasury mm-hmm. bills that are maturing right around the time when the debt limit could be binding. Um, money market funds, uh, there were outflows from treasury money market funds into commercial banks. And so the Fed, Fed does have a responsibility here to try to preserve market functioning. And there's also the question, of course, of, of the debt auctions themselves. Uh, the treasury is auctions the debt, but the Fed actually runs the auction process. And it's really important. And uh, when we have those auctions that there are more bids uh, than what's on offer. If, if, there, if there were not enough bids, uh, an auction would fail, and that would be a ter- terrible blow to the financial markets. Yeah, you know, I, I look at this, uh, Bill, and I'm going to go to your Berkeley economics and the great Barry Eichengreen and what he said about gold and the emotion of gold. How do you respond to the moral consequences of our debt, the emotion of the right? And they had a huge response to your Bloomberg essay, the moral consequences of this debt. How do you respond to that like Eichengreen would respond to gold? Well, a very simple uh, point is that look what's happened to indebtedness over the last uh, 20, 30 years. It's soared, even though we've had this debt limit ceiling in place uh, all during that time. So the debt limits clearly doesn't restrain spending. We've tripled the amount of government debt uh, relative to the economy uh, over the last 30, 40 years. And, you know, so the debt limit's not really doing much to actually constrain things. Uh, I also think you don't really want to mess around with the creditworthiness of the United States, because if you do mess around with it, even if you avert a, a disaster in the end, it can have consequences. In 2011, the debt limit was raised at the end of the day in a time, in, in, barely in a timely way. 
And yet the uh, S&P uh, downgraded the rating of the United States from AAA to AA plus. So there was a consequence even when there wasn't a technical default uh, on the debt. Bill, you experienced this when you were at the Fed. Mike McKee was talking to us earlier. He just messaged me, said the FOMC in 2011 and 2015 gamed out possible Fed responses to a default. What did you think you could do back then? Well, I think there's a couple of things the Fed can do. The Fed can basically tell tell market participants that we're going to continue to engage in the Treasury market. We'll take you know we'll take defaulted securities as collateral, just as well as the securities that haven't defaulted. You know, you don't want the market to start to really uh, lock up because people can't raise money against Treasury collateral because they're worried that that collateral could be in default. So the, tre- the Fed has basically said we're going to take, treat we're going to treat uh, we're going to take defaulted Treasury securities in all our operations. The only difference between defaulted securities and non-defaulted securities would be we value defaulted securities at market prices. So the Fed's basically saying we're going to keep the repo market functioning, we're going to keep the Treasury bill market functioning. Now, if things got bad enough, the Federal Reserve could also engage in you know in, in, in interventions in the secondary Treasury market. They could actually come in and buy, like we saw uh, during the early stages of the COVID pandemic. Fed would not want to do that because they don't want to get involved in the middle of a, a political controversy. But if the Treasury market really started to melt down. Uh, the Fed would probably come in and, 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 and participate in the secondary market. The Fed can't do anything about the auctions themselves because the Fed is precluded from buying directly from the U.S. Treasury. So, Bill, let's just build on this. The attitude of people on Wall Street, as you know, and we're all familiar with, is that this happens, we get through it. And if it gets dicey, guess what we do? We buy treasuries. Now, Bill, you get all those kinks of various tenors at the very front end of the curve on T-bills. But, Bill, ultimately, people still buy treasuries. Do you see that changing whatsoever? I think that uh, that's what generally happens, and I think that's mostly right. I mean, basically what people assume is that there's going to be a lot of drama, but in the end, the debt limit will be raised uh, in time. Now, so what that what that means is if if, all, if we mess up even just one time and don't raise the debt limit in a timely way, it's going to be a huge market surprise. So you go right. from thinking that the probability of default is, you know, 0.01% to all of a sudden there is a technical default. It'd be a huge blow to financial markets. Bill, tell me about our ratios as compared to the maximum doom and gloom of Japanese ratios. To our listeners and viewers, in a debt ceiling debate, the three or the four or the five ratios that matter, are we fiscally constrained or are we doing okay? Well, I think the big difference between us and Japan is we very much depend on the kindness of strangers to hold our, our government debt. The U.S. has run, as you know, current account deficits for you know decades and so a lot of the uh, U.S. assets are held by foreigners. Uh, foreigners don't have to hold U.S. debt, obviously. And so there is a risk that they could decide that, that maybe the U.S. isn't so credit worthy. Well, they're, they're, they're credit worthy. And I guess we're going to, you know, as John mentions, Wall Street says, OK, let's get through this in the autumn and move on. And you suggest there could be a singular damage given one screw up. What is the proactive process of Secretary Yellen not to get, John, not to get a bipartisan support, that's impossible, but what is the proactive process of Secretary Yellen to solve this before the autumn angst? Well, I guess what you have to do is convince a, a number of uh, Republicans, more moderate Republicans, to, to come over the fence and join Democrats in raising the debt limit in a timely way. Bill, I just want to wrap things up with the recent economic data, if we can, because we have about 60 seconds late, left with you. The recent survey data, Bill, how much weight would you put on it? What we're seeing in the ISM, what we saw in Empire Manufacturing earlier this week? Yeah, things are definitely weaker, uh, although I think part of this is just the rotation away from goods back to services. 
And I think we really need to see the January data because we don't know how much uh, you know Christmas sales were distorted by the fact that people bought a lot of stuff uh, in prior years during the, the pandemic. So I, I want to see what what the January looks like, January data looks like, and then I'll have a better sense of whether this Christmas weakness is just you know a lull or whether it's something more serious. How would you change your thoughts going into the next FOMC meeting if you were still there? Does this do anything to change your thoughts about the pace, the ultimate no, destination? They've, they've made it very clear that it's going to be 25 basis points at the next meeting, and the weaker inflation data and weaker activity data you know, confirms that. Uh, I think that's almost certain that they're going to do another 25 basis points move in March. And then the main, main, maybe the main meeting's up for grabs, but you know, I think it's going to be hard for them to stop because if they stop, financial conditions are going to ease and the amount of Fed rate is going to lessen. Bill, this was great, as always. Thanks for squeezing that in at the end. We appreciate it. Bill Dudley there, the former New York Fed president. We can catch up with Greg Battle now, the US Head of Equity and Derivative Strategy over at BNP Paribas. Greg Battle, we've got to leave with this. 3400 on the S&P, year-end is your price target. You're not looking for that dip and rip. You're just looking for a dip year-end on the S&P. You are the most bearish strategist on the street right now that we track. So, Greg, let's start there. Talk to me about the journey to 3400 yeah, good morning. Um, well, I think the, the target itself is less of an outlier than it seems, because when you look through the forecast that many strategists have for the first half um, of this year, similar to us, people are looking for recessionary price action and for the equity market to make new lows. Where our view is a little bit differentiated is we're not looking for the type of V-shaped recovery that we saw back in 2020. We think there's going to be a harder environment to see fiscal and monetary response, um, and we think that leads us to an equity market that can uh, have some healthy declines this year. The BNP Paribas hallmark here is to undershoot GDP. You've always been right about that. You've never gone with a boom crew, if you will, Greg. And that all devolves down to the x-axis, the timeline. Give us the timeline of this equity weakness. Is it one quarter? Is it quarters? Or really, can you get out into the depths of 2024? Well, I mean, obviously, we've seen some pretty big declines um, in the last calendar year. That was far more of a story of multiple compression than it was recessionary price action. Right. What we're looking for in the first half this year is recessionary price action. We think that can start with this current earnings season. We've seen some bad economic data this week. Um, we've seen Alcoa after the bell yesterday, which was uh, uh, a little bit of a troubling release. And we think this earnings season over the next couple of weeks could be a challenge. But really, when we fast forward three months to Q1 earnings season, we think that could be really the point at which the economic data is really decelerating and we can see some real capitulation in terms of earnings forecasts. So the next two right. earnings season we think uh, could be the most troubling for equities. What is this placement of bets right now? When you look at the cross moments around the equity market and particularly skew, when you look at the fancy derivative chat, what does it say about the bet that's being placed right now? Well, I think what we see in the equity vol market is uh, a little bit of a reflection of what we've seen more broadly in the equity market, which is a more constructive start to the year. We saw the VIX trade down to an 18 handle, which is kind of very low relative to where it's been over the last year. Um, and that's really reflective of this kind of uh, China reopening, warmer winter in Europe, um, starting trend to translate into some short covering into the US, which people are starting to uh, weave into a narrative of maybe this elusive uh, 
soft landing is coming. But we think that's pretty inconsistent with the data. I mean, when we look at the data this week, retail sales, um, industrial production, empire manufacturing, um, this is data that's decelerating aggressively. So we think there's some signs of complacency. And I think the VIX sub 20 has been a pretty bad signal for the equity market over the past. So there is a bit of pushback against this view. It comes from Neil Dutta of Renaissance Macro. We caught up with him a little bit later, a little bit earlier this week. Just listen to what he had to say, Greg. The manufacturing data undeniably weak. You mentioned the IP data yesterday. But why does this continue, he asks. Aircraft and autos have a lot of momentum. The dollar sold off, supporting the exports of manufactured goods and global growth has rebounded. Neil is pushing this idea that we could have a more resilient economy than some people expect, Greg. What would you say to that? I think we've had an incredibly aggressive tightening cycle from the Fed, and we know these things act with these kind of long and variable lags, as they say, and I think we're going to just bite some of the pain this year. So Carl Riccadonna, our economics team, point to the idea of nominal GDP falling below Fed funds as something that historically has really been a signal for deceleration in terms of economic momentum. They expect that to happen at the start of the second quarter, just when Q1 earnings are, are being delivered. When we look at things from a more bottom-up perspective, there's undoubtedly been a real deceleration in terms of earnings forecast momentum. We've seen it sequentially that each earnings season has seen downgrades a little larger than the last. We think we're going to get bigger downgrades as we move through the next couple of weeks this earnings season. And we think we get bigger downgrades than that as we move through Q1 earnings. So I think the outlook is challenging. Greg, how important is history here as well? We mentioned Julian Emanuel of Evercore a little bit earlier this morning when he said this line here, no bear market has ever bottomed before the start of a recession. Does that way on you too. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a great stat. We produced a piece where we went back and looked at every recession and bear market over the last 100 years, and that was indeed one of the takeaways that we've seen. When we look at recessionary bear markets, and we do think we have a recession this year, they tend to be deep and they tend to be very long. Um, we've gone back and studied all of these crashes. We see some notable similarities between where we are today and where we were in the early right. 2000s. That was a bull market that was driven very much by multiple compression, retail participation, tech and growth stocks led. Very similar to the bull market we experienced prior to last year. And that unwind was long, right. it was deep, and we see a lot of similarities of that to where we are today. Greg, your shop has an absolutely original heritage in China, folks. This goes back well into the 19th uh, century. BNP Paribas and China, can their, can their boom, can their predicted boom, can their end of COVID, can their new 5 or 6% GDP growth, can that overcome the equity global? Boom. Well, I think we've obviously seen the power of the reopening trade in the U.S., and that's certainly been the driver this year of this more constructive start for equity markets globally. I think that we would question a little bit about whether that's going to be sufficient alone to offset some of the headwinds that we see here domestically in the U.S., um, but it certainly raises the question of relative performance globally in equities. Um, and this is one of the reasons why I'm more comfortable with this bearish view for U.S. equities, in that in the case that we're wrong on the global mechanism, macroeconomic outlook and global growth is stronger. We think there are regions other than the US that are likely to, uh, to lead that charge higher. 3,400 on the S&P 500 year-end is the call. Greg Battle of BNP Paribas. Greg, thank you, sir. Thank you very much. Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. 
Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. You can earn four times points on your top two eligible spending categories every month, like transit, U.S. restaurants, and gas stations. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Four times points on up to $150,000 in purchases per year. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. We go math on a Thursday here, 26 minutes before economic data. Alicia Levine holds high ground on mathematical acuity and looking at equity and capital markets with BNY Mellon today. I'm going to go mathy on you right now, and let's go Newtonian calculus, first and second derivative. What's the convexity out there that most has your attention? What's the accelerative force that scares you? What scares me is really the pricing in of the soft landing that has happened since the beginning of the year, because as you know, it's not actually what happens in the data that moves markets. It's what's already priced in. So everyone was defensive by the end of the year. We flipped over China reopening, the growth impulse, you know, tech's going to make a resurgence. Yields are going lower. Great for stocks, great for multiples. The soft landing is out there and it simply wasn't priced in at all. Then we moved towards that. And I think that's ultimately the risk. You know, in the end, the peak Fed funds rate as priced by the market is about 50 basis points less than where mm-hmm. we think we're going. That's the issue. It's not that the market is necessarily wrong. It's that if it is wrong, the reaction is not going to be a pleasant one in equities. Not seeing Talab with my phrase last year, the gravity's returned, you know, the sharp ratio, risk-free rate and all that. He's got a book, magisterial and misunderstood, called Anti-Fragile, which is the mathematics of what you don't see because you don't have skin in the game which leads to the shadow banking debate. What's the mystery out there in the bet that's being made for 2023? The bet that's being made is that the macro story from 2022 carries over to 23, meaning that if the second derivative on inflation is negative, that is lower growth rates or even deflation, that that will rally the market. That is the problem because the the bond market has already priced in the recession, has already priced in lower inflation. And with that, if you're only looking at multiple expansion as a way to rally the market, when most market participants are assuming that earnings have to come in, that's the problem. The story this year is the earnings risk and the recession risk, not the inflation risk anymore. That that second derivative is clear, has been clear for several months. It's being driven by a drop in commodity prices, a drop in the goods pricing. That's been clear, but you can only go so far on that. And that's the dance, the dance between lower yields, lower inflation prints. But ultimately, if you're getting to 2 or 3%, it's because you have a recession. Where does that leave tech? How cyclically challenged are some of those names? So, there's, you know, we've talked about this, you know, for the last few months. The multiples there are still too high. In every cycle, there is that moment where leadership shifts. It typically is caused by a recession 
or some kind of an event, and you see it very clearly. What happened here was sort of that excitement of multiples and tech and, you know, exponential growth. And then it started tipping over by the middle of 21, more towards the value, industrials, materials, commodities. So we think the next cycle, I'm not saying for the next year, but for the next cycle, the growth stocks simply will be more challenged because that they were the leaders before. And if you go back 50, 60, 70 years, there are very clear cycles of outperformance and the break tends to come around recessions or big events. And and COVID was one of those events and the slowdown is one of those events. Regime change. Regime change. Your phrase. I think Sally Nadella of Microsoft's been pretty clear about it. They're not hiding. The Microsoft CEO this week, Tom, in Davos, the following words, and I keep saying this, they are not hiding. They're telling you this loud and clear in their actions with job cuts, in their words. Here's the quote. During the pandemic, there was a rapid acceleration. I think we're going to go through a phase today where there is some amount of normalisation in demand. Alicia, they're just telling us up front, aren't they? That you You don't fire people when you have growth ahead of you. You fire people when growth is slowing. And so the message we're getting from this particular sector is that growth is slowing. We've seen it in the stock prices. That's not all tech, but you still have stocks that are trading at 60 times forward earnings. Those have to come down. They tend to be concentrated at the top of the market, concentrated at the top of the index of the S&P. So ultimately, that's a tough place to be, relatively. You're not all in cash. What do you own? No, we are not in cash. Cash. We don't we don't do that, but um, we don't. So we we, we recently uh, raised our exposure to fixed income. We did that at the end of last year. We're implementing it this year. We have um, tilted our equity exposure to me to be more value oriented and to look at some of those names that are underneath the surface, not the top ten names that everybody probably still has in their portfolios, hoping that they're going to outperform this year. So we're looking at more value. We're looking at growth at a reasonable price. Tech names that have earnings and dividends and cash flow, that's great. That's what's going to work this year. It's simply the growth at, at any price won't work. And, and that story was last year, and that will continue in this cycle. If you remember, if you remember after 2000, nobody wanted to own tech for about seven years. Very hard. Tech rallied. Same thing here? Not the same thing here, but there is a, there is, the leadership will not be here, and it, the lesson will be hard, hard learned. That's going to compromise the index in a massive way, isn't it? Massive. You can still make money in the different sectors. We, we like industrials. We like materials. We're still we're still long energy because we think. At, let's just, by the way, let's talk about the fact that WTI quietly went from seventy yeah. to eighty. We've been, been talking, talking about that. You haven't been watching, but we've been talking about that. <laughs> she listens and watches every day, Tom. What are you talking I do. about? I, I just I, I think what's Alicia, important. Can I say there how is nice it was to have you in a studio? It's this so, is just awesome. Yeah. Thanks for making the effort. It makes a massive difference. So great to be here with you, you guys. You me off there. You know, well, that's because uh, time's up, Tom. Just getting towards the end. We, Plus, you oh, started gonna... to be rude as well. Yeah, you know, okay. just, it's my job to rein you in sometimes. Alicia, thank you. Alicia's <clears> been there. <laughs> FB and Wine Melon. Right now, and this is what we do at Bloomberg Surveillance, we want to bring you experience on the sell side, on people advising and doing securities research. She is... A legend in the business. She is Jessica uh, Reef Ehrlich. She's media and entertainment analyst at Bank of America. And long ago and far away, she would put out a 10-page 
effort for OPCO, and we would all have to stop and read every word and every sensitivity analysis of her work. Now, she has a new war. It's the streaming wars, and we're honored for Global Wall Street to take notes this morning. Jessica, thrilled to have you here and honored. How bad are the streaming wars? Well, first of all, thank you for having me, and thank you for remembering Oppenheimer. That's a long time ago. Um, you know, it's it, with the exception of Netflix, everybody is losing a lot of money. But it's it's critical that the traditional media companies make the transition. Linear pay TV universe is declining and declining quickly, um, and the the viewers are going to streaming. They want to watch what they want when they want, and so ratings are down dramatically, and the ad dollars will follow. Jessica, I look at your optimism on streaming, and I'm going to go to the most troubled, let's call it David Zaslav's Warner Brothers Digital, WBD. You're at, you're at lunch with him at the Sunset Tower Hotel. What's your question to Zavlov, and frankly, for the rest of the industry, about what's the rate of change here? What's the speed forward for the streaming wars? Well, they're a little bit different, so that's an interesting company to pick up. WBD, Warner Brothers Discovery, will launch their combined service in Q2. And we don't know exactly what that will look like, how it will be priced. Um, do they keep Discovery Plus? Do they, do they keep it a la carte but also integrate it because there's a very loyal uh, mm -hmm. following? It's cash cow. But remember, Warner Brothers Discovery has an enormous library. It's not just Warner Brothers TV and film, but they also have all the Turner right. libraries. So when they launch, our expectation is they'll have news, they'll have sports, they'll have entertainment, they'll have documentaries, they'll have you know nonfiction. So that's a little bit different. The ones who have launched already, like Paramount Plus or Peacock or Disney Plus, you can see their numbers. They're losing billions of dollars. Um, you know, and like again, okay, just go back to what. They But Jessica, to your enthusiasm on Netflix and to get to this afternoon or Mandalorian coming out for Disney Plus to save the day, when do they get to profit? What is your x-axis uh, at Bank of America when they finally turn profitable? Well, in the case of Netflix, they are profitable. So they are at a completely different level than all of the other traditional media companies who have kind of joined the party later. Um, there are massive losses. Um, in the case of Warner Brothers Discovery, the losses have peaked in 22. Mm -hmm. In the case of their peak losses should be this year, Paramount Plus and others next right. year. There's, there's kind of a long road to profitability. Uh, and the margins in the business will see what they really are ultimately. Are they 20%? Can they climb? You know, can they scale up beyond that? But it's clear that the economics well, will be will be far worse than the pay TV, you know, the traditional pay TV bonds. I got eight ways to go here, Jessica. I mean, I mean, there's so much to talk about in the ferment of the losses being taken. I think I've got to go to the heritage that we see right now debated at Disney over Fox. Mr. Uh, Mr. Peltz is in there uh, knocking around and others, and it's about a gentleman in his 90s, Rupert Murdoch. What is your outcome? I mean, if I was having coffee with you and Gordon Crawford, I'd say, what is the outcome for the Murdoch empire five years from now? How do you visualize that? Well, I think Rupert Murdoch has proven to be the smartest person in Hollywood. He sold at the peak, and the assets that he kept are the live assets, so live That's news, true. live sports, and they're doing very, very well. Obviously, there are cyclical headwinds in advertising. 
<clears throat> and secular TV, but they are not losing billions of dollars in streaming like others. So Fox is in a very different position because they're much smaller. They're bite-sized. They could be broken up or they, they have a great balance sheet. They could buy something. So they're in a completely different position than the other companies that you mm-hmm. mentioned, whether it's Disney or Paramount or, you know, Comcast with NBCU. This might sound like a rant, but perhaps because it is. Uh, Tom and I were both having this rant, Jessica, a little bit early this morning. This was meant to improve the user experience. It hasn't. It was meant to be cheaper. It isn't. Uh, Jessica, it's become increasingly expensive. We all look at what we pay now for these streaming gaps, and it adds up to way, way more than what we were paying for cable. How does all of that end, Jessica, do you think? Obviously, consumers should have probably stayed with cable, but, that, you know, kind of the that's over. I mean, that, you know, like the, the trend line is there. Uh, we'll see where cable levels out, but you're hundred percent right. And that's why the biggest issue facing streaming is churn and consumers. It's very easy to turn on off and on and off these services. Unlike cable where you had to wait for, you know, a service man to come and disconnect, take your set top box. Um, this is, it's just easy to go on and off. And so that's part of right. the with comics and streaming. Jessica, you and I lived this. I remember Dennis Leibowitz at DLJ doing the same thing. It's one of the dumbest things I ever did, folks. Leibowitz told me that you're going to have to pay $50 a month for cable, and I told him he was nuts. And, of course, I was totally wrong. Let's take it back to the guy that invented this. This is Brian Roberts and the Roberts family at Comcast. What does traditional cable do to get back to the persistent cash flows that they enjoyed? To me, it's done. Well, Brian... A hundred percent agree. Brian Roberts is one of the smartest people I know. And, um, you know, they've done an amazing job. They're very astute when they do deals. They, they've seen around corners. Peacock actually launched. They were the first AVOD service. Um, their content, you know, it, I mean, they haven't invested in content the way some of the others have, and they haven't had those losses either. But as far as, you know, the video business, it, it's shrinking for them, but they've been very creative and strong and broadband. So their broadband business is, 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 you know, it's much larger than video. And they've also, you know, been more aggressive in terms of trying to, to capture viewers and make it easier for them to watch all apps in one service. Right. I, I'm sorry, the Time Warner deal, Time Warner Cable was, the, the government wouldn't allow them to do it. it. Having Comcast in New York would have been an amazing thing because it's, they really make television right. or doing very easy. Jessica, you, John's got to say goodbye, but Jessica, to be <laughs> honest, all we want to know is do you have the power to get English football, Premier League football on one streaming service? Can you fix that for us? I don't know about that, but I think isn't a lot of it on Peacock? It is a lot of it, but then you've got to guess is it on Peacock? Can I find it on a Hulu on yeah, Live TV? And, and NFL USA football Today. was down this year because it was on Amazon and old folks. Oh, it drives me nuts. Jessica, thank you. This Learned was great. Right. We've got to continue this conversation. Yeah. Jessica Reef Ehrlich there of Bank of America Securities. Thank you very much. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for Insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha 
for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.